choose to go to the moon? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. How's it going, everyone? Uh, this is Nate, uh, more commonly known as Selfish Narwhal. It's October 23rd, we're getting pretty close to Halloween. Um, so you'll see a lot of costumes, the generic ones, the police officer, uh, construction worker. Um, one, of the most, one of the more common ones is also uh, astronauts. And uh, our theme today is going to be space. And uh, why do people want to dress up as astronauts? What, what intrigues us about being scientists or working for NASA? I mean, NASA is a, a huge fashion trend right now. And what is it about space exploration um, that honestly makes us dream? Um, today, I'm going to have a uh, special, special guest. It's my uh, dad, actually. And uh, I'm not even being biased. This guy is an actual space historian. Um, he runs a state museum here uh, in the town that we live in. And uh, it's actually a, the International Space Hall of Fame. Um, so long story short, we're going to be talking about a majority of things, and uh, he's very the, the knowledge that he has on this subject is, is completely mind-boggling, and uh, I'm going to learn from him, and I hope you guys do as well. So sit back and enjoy. That's beautiful. This has got to be one of the most proud moments of my life, I guarantee you. Hey, so I'm joined here with, as I just mentioned my dad um but for the sake of posterity we'll call you chris chris um so first of all let's give a little background why um or what is it um in the or what ha what have you done inside the space realm right now what are you what are you doing well it's an interesting wow i'm good Got to kind of learn how to where exactly to get with this microphone. So yeah, I'm so used to the radio where you got to be right, right up there. to yeah, it. Yeah, I can so, always turn it down. Yeah, no. In any case, though, but uh, um, currently I'm the executive director of the New Mexico Museum of Space History. Um, and so, truly, if you look at my background, my career, um, I didn't have a career in space, yeah. as it were. Maybe a little bit, and I can get into that. So, yeah. but. Um, I was in the Navy, um, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1986, uh, and then served in submarines um, for 20 years. Um, along the way in submarines, serving on you know ballistic missile submarines, attack submarines, diesel submarines, et cetera. So yeah, my the whole realm. Yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> at least as far as the submarine fleet goes, you know. But and then even shore tours, you know, I taught at Cornell University, I taught at University of Kansas, um, worked in the Special Intelligence Directorate over in uh, um, over in Europe and Africa. Um, uh, in any case, though. The only space related thing that I can say that I did while I was in the service was, hey, you know, I was on a ballistic missile submarine. We launched two missiles, not in anger. It was a test. Yeah. But those things, <laughs> yeah. those things went into space and you had to know quite a bit. Obviously, I'm, I'm certified as a strategic missile officer, so knew quite a bit about missile technology, shall we say. Yeah. OK, but but it was more on the, shall we say, the delivery side <laughs> rather than the exploration side. Um, uh, in any case, though, um, and then jokingly i have always said i moved from one nonprofit industry into another when i retired in 2006 um ended up uh, planning you know planning a trip for the family and then you know going to a museum was one of the things that we were planning on doing and ended up running the museum after retirement kind of a strange yeah. set of circumstances and that was the first space museum that i was associated with and that's when i started my second career you know, in the space <clears throat> industry, although you don't really, yeah. it's, it's really the museum industry, yeah. but it's space related and, you know, working fairly closely or, you know, at least on the periphery of a lot of the space stuff that's going on today. Mm -hmm. um, although the concentration, gee, what a surprise, it's historical, not necessarily operational, you yeah. know, so for the most part. So, but yeah, that's kind of how I ended up where I am today, you know, so ran that museum for a uh, number of years and then came down here in 2012 and took over and, and have been here now for uh, good grief, eight years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's my understanding that you've talked with quite a few people that have been to space. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of the, the privileges and um, you know, one of the amazing things about being in the job. Yeah. Um, so through your conversations with these individuals, would you draw any comparisons between submarines, which are once again, small mm -hmm. man operated yeah. <laughs> vehicles on the bottom of the ocean? And then small man-operated, well, or computer with space yep. and stuff 
up in the up in space, you might yeah. say. Oh yeah, most definitely. How are those how are those uh uh two areas similar? I guess? Similar, yeah. A lot of examples to talk about. It's and it's funny that you say um you know, people that you've talked to and met and stuff like yeah. that, you know, so I've, you know, like I said, been privileged to, to meet virtually all, you know, vir- all the surviving uh, moonwalkers, you know, and a lot of the, the Apollo guys, wow. Gemini, Mercury, um, shuttle astronauts, um, haven't met as high a percentage of the shuttle astronauts, but that's because there's so many yeah, of them. Yeah, there's quite a few more. Um, uh, but, you know, the Apollo and the, and the other folks, yes, definitely. So, and, and I'm fortunate to call a couple of them good friends um, uh, in any case. So... I think one of the, 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 there's two examples, you know, when you talk about the similarities, et cetera, it's kind of funny. I was, I was, uh, the museum that I used to work for, um, we had worked with the George Bush, uh, you know, the, uh, the submarines and the, <laughs> and the, uh, um, uh, comparison kind of between them and spacecraft. And it's, it's funny because, you know, we talked about the concept of, the people that I've had, you know, been fortunate mm-hmm. enough to meet, you know, and many of the Apollo folks, uh, Gemini, Mercury, Shuttle, et cetera, um, even some of the Russians and the, and the old ex-Soviets, you know, so um, uh, who have flown in space. In any case, though, um, one, there's two examples I can think of, really. So the first one is I was at the George Bush Library. Um, this is Bush the Younger um, yeah. of the two presidents, number 43. In any case, and we had just done an exhibit at the museum that they were doing on space. They also then had um, one of the uh, one of my friends who's a producer, his film, they were doing a showing of it, you know, the wonder of it all. Uh, and they had a number of the Apollo astronauts who were at the at the thing and were going to be speaking. Really? And so, oh, yeah. So, you know, th- so, um, you know, you had Buzz Aldrin there. You had uh, Al Bean there, um, you know, a number number of folks, Charlie Duke, you know, a number of moonwalkers, et cetera. In any case, and they had finished up the talking, and then we were at a reception afterwards, you know, and I was, I was chit-chatting, and I needed to talk to Charlie Duke about something for the museum. So I mm-hmm. said, hey, Charlie, you know, hey, can we talk about this? He says, why don't we just get together at the hotel afterwards? <laughs> um, uh, you know, so we popped, you know, popped over there, and uh, at the hotel, I was waiting down in the lobby um, at, the, at the bar there, and I see Charlie and his wife, Dottie, coming down the, to, come down the stairs, <laughs> and then Buzz Aldrin is walking along with them, you know, and and his wife at that time. So in any case, and I'm like, oh, I haven't had a chance to meet Buzz. This will be very nice. So, you know, he introduced me. We talked. We sat down. We're having drinks. And so I've got Buzz Aldrin on my left side, you know, and Charlie Duke on my right side. And the funny thing was we got to talking about the comparison between submarines and spacecraft. Really? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So and uh, uh, it would it absolutely amazed me you know once again I, I grew up around the apollo program so it was one of those things that kind of you know I, yes i'm part fanboy as well yeah yeah of the space program but i've gotten to know them as people uh, as well and so uh here i am in between you know the second man to walk on the moon you know and and one of the moonwalkers from apollo 16 and they're pestering me with questions about submarining you know, and it was really, really? funny. Yeah, we spent <laughs> a lot of time, you know, so talking about that. And in the end, we kind of came to the conclusion. It's a, it might be a little bit harsh, but the conclusion that you're essentially doing the exact same thing. You're inside of a steel tube, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of pressurized steel, you know, container um, where you're manufacturing or, you know, recycling your own air, water, you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff. You have to carry your food you know, with you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You have limitations on how much food you can take and everything. You're surrounded by a hostile environment that's trying to kill you every second. Yeah. You know, that you're in it. it really, the joke kind of came down to is that it was just the way you died. If there was a hole in the compartment, you know, yeah. in space, you know, you're suffocating down on Earth, you know, you're compressed to death, essentially, you know, yeah. so you drowned. So it was just kind of a... <laughs> that's, that's grisly. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a little bit odd. So, but that was the first time that I was really thinking about it, you know, and, and that the comparison was very, you know, close. The second one is um, one of my good friends um, that uh, is a shuttle astronaut, and he's still a shuttle astronaut um, in any case, and he's the first astronaut who ever flew back-to-back missions, um, and oh, wow. that's Steve Bowen, and uh, he flew on STS-126, STS-132, and 133, 133 being the last flight of one of the shuttles in any case, uh, and when he went up for STS-126, which was his first mission, um, oh, let me background on Steve. He's a submariner. Yeah. We graduated the academy together. Mm-hmm. He served out in the fleet. Then he applied into the astronaut program, and he got picked up as a mission specialist. 
So uh-huh. he comes to it with experience having been in submarines. So when he flew up to the International Space Station and they docked with it, and then they opened the hatch and he started to go into it, oh, he my. said the thing that shocked him was that it smelled almost exactly like a submarine on the inside. Whoa. And it's because, you know, you're talking about, you know, human sweat, flesh, everything else like that. You're talking about recycled air, the electronics, the equipment. The equipment for space flight is pretty much exactly the same as the submarine. If you look at the control panel of the then flying shuttle compared to the then submarines that were being built, you know what they looked like? Exactly the same. Really? You know, if you went back to the older submarines and the original shuttle, they looked exactly the same. So, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, it, the, the technology is not that different. The environment is different, but not the technology. So, you know, it was huh. kind of interesting then to hear that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I... Yeah, we got, a, we got a puppy in the background. I'm just laughing at over here. So yeah. that, is, that is taunting the bigger dog in the room. Uh-huh. Um, uh, in any case, though, the, uh, uh, but that was the comparison that, that is most prevalent um, when you think about it. Um, that, yes, there's a significant similarity, even down to the smell. The smell of the spacecraft. Uh, is not that dissimilar from a submarine. He said it was just missing a hint of diesel was the only thing that it was missing. I imagine there's very little diesel. Uh, yeah, no diesel. Yeah, no diesel up on the uh, up on the International Space Station. Yeah, so okay. that'd be that'd be terrible. <laughs> yep. Uh, so you had mentioned um, fanboy, um, and that's something that obviously you have to have with you for a long time. You know, you're you're exposed to something usually when you're younger, growing mm-hmm. up, kind of formalizing yeah. who you are becoming. And then that's where the nostalgia or the excitement kind of sets in for you to have this fanboy-esque um, kind of excitement for, for whatever this, the subject is. What was it when you were younger that really um, uh, created this uh, uh, ever-growing tree of, hmm. of passion for this industry? Yeah. So in my situation... Um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, the, that I was thinking about, you still got me there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So in any case, so it's kind of strange listening to yourself in the headphones, you know, always a little different. So, yeah. um, in any case though, growing up, I grew up in Downey, California. Uh, Downey is where they built the Apollo command module, command and service module. They also built the space shuttle there. And so if you can imagine, you know, I was born in 1964, grew up during the era of Apollo, um, Mm -hmm. very much so. In fact, one of my absolute earliest memories is laying on the floor in front of those gigantic console TVs, you know, so that that massive TV, small screen Um, (laughs) uh, in any in any case, though. And, you know, kind of the chin in the in the cupped hands, laying on the floor, looking up at the TV, watching the the Apollo 11 moon landing. You know, that's one of the things that I very much remember. But growing up in that town, you were around space a lot, you know, very obviously, you know. So you're part of it's part of Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles. So there's a billion things going on, you know, in L.A. But in that that portion of the town, um, the uh, uh, the space program, you usually knew somebody whose parent, you know, mom or dad was working in the space program. And, And in fact. Um, the gal that I went to high school with, we were high school sweethearts and, and married, you know, so um, uh, her dad worked um, over there at North American. Uh, it originally started North American Aviation, then it became North American Rockwell, eventually it became Boeing, you know, but in any case, he worked on um, the electronic and the electrical systems and the camera systems on the Apollo spacecraft. Um, so in any case, no joke. so you, you grew up around it. And so when the, when the Apollo astronauts came back from their missions, they did national tours um, and they did national tours, especially going back to the contractor locations where the spacecraft parts, whether it was the rocket, whether it was the lunar module, whether it was the lunar rover, whether it was the command and service module, the engines, et cetera, all those things where they were the spacesuits, where they were built, they went back to those locations. So they came back to North American. Usually they'd have their spacecraft sitting there that had been brought back for the post-mission inspection. Hmm. And they would land in a helicopter and then they'd walk across this, no kidding, painted red carpet. It was it was part of the tarmac, you know, the parking lot and tarmac of yeah. where there was a landing spot. Um, and there would be, you know, ropes up there and you'd be at it. You'd be throwing confetti onto them, trying to shake <laughs> their hands, you know, and everything else. And then they'd get up. They'd give speeches, et cetera, thanking all the workers and stuff. And so my mom used to take me um, to those all the time. In fact, I have a picture from the Apollo 16 mission after those astronauts came back, and it was a newspaper. Um, They had taken my picture right after I had shaken John Young's hand. Um, And it was a picture of him with everybody there. But, I mean, 
clear as a bell. You can see me and you can see my mom leaning over, you know, to yeah. make sure that I had shaken his hand, you know, so when I was eight years old at the time, you know, so, so I idolized the astronauts, you know, and, uh-huh. the, and the space program as most of us did during that era. So there's where the true, you know, that inner passion probably comes from. Well, then when I went to into the Navy, I wasn't thinking greatly about space. You know, mm-hmm. we were we were in the shuttle era um, by this point in time. Um, I read biographies like crazy because I'm a history nut. Um, and so and, and books and stories and things like that. So as they came out, I read them. And so it was kind of a side knowledge, but it was a side knowledge along with a lot of other you know, yeah. side knowledges and everything. So had never even thought about it until in the middle of retirement, lining up a job in at that point in time, Kansas City uh, and planned it was planning, like I said, a trip for the family to go down to Wichita and visit uh, the exploration place down there, the zoo and uh, and the museum up in Hutchinson, um, Space Museum up in Hutchinson. In any case, uh, they had the announcement for the the, the director of that, uh, the president and CEO of that museum retiring uh, or resigning and that they were looking for a new director doing national search. And I said, boy, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. I've got no experience <laughs> in space, you know, but that sounds really interesting. And my wife said, you know, well, you can't not have the job any more than you do right now. Go mm-hmm. ahead and send them your resume. And I did. And the next thing I know, I'm running a space museum. So. Yeah. So all that history with you uh, reading the biographies, mm-hmm. I mean, everything that you had you didn't even know that you were preparing essentially, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and then, I mean, getting into the job made me realize that I needed to learn a heck of a lot more, you know, so, and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and, and, and not only about space history, but also about at that point in time, museum operations, um, Mm -hmm. as well, because, you know, I, Knew nothing about operating yeah. a museum. It's I knew a little bit different than some reasons. I, I knew leadership, imagine. management, ethics, all those sort of things. You know, you translate that from whatever job you have, and you can learn anything else. But yeah, as far as you know, then it was a crash course on uh, space history and learning as quick as possible. You know, and and trying to get to know folks in you know in the in the space you know the historical space side, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it was a lot of it, it was and has been and is. A lot of fun. Yeah. Know, so, yeah. Yeah. So from from the beginning, I mean, you're saying eight years old uh-huh. to to where you are now, uh, whether or not you've been paying the utmost attention to it, you've con- you've always had space on your radar. Yeah. So throughout the decades, um, let's go with the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or 2000, 2010, and then 2000 to 2020, 2010 to 2020. Yep. What do you think are the most important moments oh, God. in the field? And <laughs> And once again, I understand like there's probably wow. a couple for each one for each oh, decade. There is, yeah. But if you could kind of, I guess what I'm asking is kind of give us a little bit of a walkthrough yeah. of how the space industry changed from from your time here from the Apollo yeah, astronauts. I, I can see where you're going to with this. what we've got with uh, yeah. SpaceX and yep. some of the other players now. Yep, there's significant similarities. There's things that have been constant throughout it, and there's there's a ton of differences, very obviously. So. Um, well, if you really got to go back and you probably even have to go back further, you have to go back to the very early days of space flight, you know, mm-hmm. which is in the early 1900s, you know, and your folks like Dr. Goddard and Silkovsky and, yeah. and Oberth, you know, and these and, you know, the Germans, the Russians, the Americans um, and, and what they were doing research, you know, and just trying to figure out how the heck do rockets work, you know, the engines, you know, and Dr. Goddard figuring out every little bit, you know, that you needed, you know, whether that was regenerated cooling, whether that was gimbling the engines, you know, that was location of engines and tanks and different types of fluids and, you know, things. And they were all working on this orbital mechanics, you name it, you Mm -hmm. know, um, all of that. So that was the very early days, but not a lot happened with it, you know, so until you obviously get to the World War II time frame. And this is going to set us up for what I think what you're looking for, which is really the 50s, 60s. Um, and that's the fact that a lot of space advances historically have happened because of military pushes. Mm-hmm. And that, I, you know, it's one of those things. A lot of times things that happen technologically um, in the world happen because of the a military push for yep. something whether it's you know a, a yeah, whether new, it's good or bad new, usually a new, we- comes. a new weapon or whatever else you know just look at gps you know gps is a result of not necessarily a civilian use for it but a military use for it that has been adapted so significantly to a civilian use rockets originally everything going for it was all really military you know so and it was the military push and the first successful rockets were really 
truly the V2s um, during World War II um, that the Germans did and that we then brought here afterwards and did research on, um, you know, not too far within sight of where we're doing yes, this interview yeah. right now. Um, you know, so but it was always a military push. And so what you have happening then in the 50s and 60s after World War Two is everybody realizing that jet engines, rocket engines, things like that are going to be the wave of the future for aviation and space flight. So you have the Cold War and the Cold War leads us into the space race, because um, if you have a Cold War, you don't have a hot war. So you're fighting yep. in realms other than, you know, shooting bullets and, mm -hmm. and nasty bombs at each other. Almost a cultural fight. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you know, and there, it's a big cultural fight. And one of the areas where essentially you ended up with um, almost, you know, knights, you know, on chargers going up against each other in jousts, quote unquote, you know, in yeah. single combat and stuff is the space race. You know, and so um, you have the Soviets in the U.S. So if you go back, you know, the 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 60s is when we really start flying. Well, it is when we start flying people. 1961, we have um, uh, we have Gagarin and Shepard, you know, going up um, from the Soviet and the U.S. side. So when you take a look at what are the things, you know, so. You obviously have the complete development of you know, bigger, faster, higher rockets that's mm -hmm. going on in the 1960s. So, yeah. you know, on the U.S. side, we start off with Mercury, and that's Mercury on a Redstone rocket, then Mercury on an Atlas rocket going into orbit. Then you go to the Gemini rocket, um, you know, and the, the, or the Gemini capsule on the top of a Titan rocket. By the way, Redstone, Atlas, Titan, those are all ballistic missiles that we adapt and we put people on top of instead of warheads, really? <laughs> you know? So, um, and then the Apollo huh. program is the first, the Saturn five, um, the Saturn one, both of those rockets are the first ones that are purpose built for human spaceflight that are not military, you know? So that, um, is, you know, kind of just the progression. The Russians are, you know, they, they start off with, you know, the R series rockets and then they end up eventually with the Soyuz in the 1960s. And guess what? That's still flying today. So when you take a look at what are the significant Gosh. things that go on, obviously, first human to fly in space, you know, but then the 60s are a time when it's like one upping each other. Yeah. And so there's it's a constant so, back and forth. There's so many different things, whether it's the first, you know, not only the first human to fly in space, the first human to orbit the Earth, the first woman to fly in space, the first space walk, the first time two ships dock, the first time two ships rendezvous. Um, the first time, you know, the first, 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 mm -hmm. first, which leads us up to 1969. You know, so the area of the 60s is the era of the firsts, you know, so 1969, you have the first human to walk on the, the surface of the moon. Yeah. Um, and so all of that, you know, from 61 to 69, eight years. Eight years we get from just flying in space the first time and realizing, yeah, we can survive in space to walking on the moon. Yeah. Incredible, you know, and it was just. Yeah, a, it, and it sounds like there was an, uh, instead of just adapting the military technology with what you're saying with the rockets, that was also the change from when you had the Saturns. It became almost its own thing, right? When they were. When NASA was created, it became its own thing. They just ended up using the technology that was existing, okay. and that was the military stuff, you know. So, and, the, and, and FYI, on the Soviet side, eventually, which becomes the Russian side when the Soviet Union mm -hmm. falls apart in the, in the 1980s. Um, the, you know, that, uh, is, was always kind of a military organization. It stayed a military organization, yeah. similar to the Chinese space program right now, which is dominated by the military, um, for the most part. So that was really the sixties. The seventies was almost, you know, you got to call almost a stasis time frame because you'd, you'd gotten to the moon. So now you're just continuing the exploration of the moon. Mm -hmm. the space stations had gone up. Now we were making bigger space stations, but they were still space stations. Um, we were rendezvousing for the first time between the U.S. and the Soviets, so there was some detente, you know, going okay. on in there. And there was the development of the shuttle. So there was development and stasis was really what was going on in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of looking at a decade by decade, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. thing of what's going on. Um, as far as the and, and for, as far as the industries, it was always <clears throat> very much government led mm -hmm. and then private contractors and and uh, um, commercial companies providing whatever it was yeah, to the to the government the they were underneath the umbrella of the government mm -hmm. you get into the 80s and now you have um uh realistically what happens now is it's the era of the shuttle you know so the shuttle gets up and it's the idea of cheaper less expensive space flight um you know pushing as hard as possible mm -hmm. the russians the soviets at that time tried to do the same thing they build their own space shuttle and they decide yeah it's not really worth it you know space stations for them get bigger 
you know, with the, they go from Salyuts into the Mir, you know, space station. Um, and the Mir, you know, is Salyut to Mir. And then the space station, as we know it now, is kind of the offshoot of that. In fact, the pieces that are up on the space station now are essentially advanced Mir pieces, you know, that are up there. And then the U.S. ones are all kind of new, newly developed stuff um, to go along with that, but uses technology that mm-hmm. we kind of understood from what they had. But it was really that era of, um, more continuous space flight, you know, up until you have Challenger. Challenger is a very significant incident, obviously, yeah. in the 1980s um, that changes that entire concept of everybody's thinking of, you know, of multiple, multiple space flights, you know, in a year to all of a sudden, OK, you know, if we push too hard, yes. we end up with, you know, we end up with a destroyed spacecraft and dead yeah. people. It's kind of similar so. to, to racing your horse too often. Yes. Yeah. You know, so um, although in this situation, it's not that the not that the the spacecraft was flown too frequently. That was never the issue with Challenger. It was the way it was flown. And on the day of Challenger, mm-hmm. it was the atmospheric conditions that it was flown under that created the problem and what they call go fever. I mean, you, we could talk for yeah. six, <laughs> six months on the, uh, on the Challenger accident and what caused it, you know, similar to the Columbia accident, same thing. So, so that was the era of the eighties, you know, so, and then the nineties is, is, is a continuation of that. There's really not a significant difference. Um, it's just the continued, you know, satellites, um, uh, you know, space station is in now in development. Yeah. And then the era, you know, as you hit the turn of the century, now you enter the age of the ISS international cooperation really going on although that started in the 90s with yeah. the shuttle mir program you know us okay. sending the shuttle up and sending astronauts up with the mir and us learning lessons on how the good and the bad of how to operate a space station yeah. and that's what the 90s is it's really a time of learning exploration you so know? it's so it's almost like the 60s was macro evolution where you had those major changes yeah and first the, the first the of, of the first and then 70s and 80s and kind of the 90s what you were discussing there is a little bit of almost as micro evolutions like just fine-tuning and mm-hmm. try, and, yep. and, and bigger things obviously yep. with the introduction and, and of the i shuttle, think that but i think that continues on through the zeros as well although you know, when you get to the, the beginning of this century, you're really starting to get into the development of the commercial side by itself, independent of government organizations somewhat coming out of its shell, you know, and starting, you know, it's in its infancy. So now you're about to see this is going to be the beginning of another set of very macro, very fast evolution mm-hmm. um, and a lot of firsts occurring again. And so. That's what leads us up, you know, because you have the ending of the shuttle stuff. You know, 2011 is when when we fly our final shuttle flight. The ISS has been completed in the, you know, that first decade of the of the new millennium. And so, you know, pretty much 70s, 80s, 90s and the first part of the century, that's 40 years is just the stasis and little improvements and everything like that. Then as you head into the last decade, you know, so the last 10 to 15 years is really when you get into the time of massively rapid change and also the commercial spaceflight world starting to come into its own. And what does that mean? Well, you've got multiple aspects to it. Yes, you still have commercial space flight that really is under the government umbrella, but you also have commercial space flight that is under government funding, but not under the government umbrella. So in other words, the government may sit here and say, hey, we're looking for companies to fly astronauts to space, to fly cargo to space, 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 space. Yep. So we're looking, we're looking for, for, for companies that can, you know, fly small payloads on suborbital flights, all those sort of things. And you then have the companies taking, you know, coming up with their proposals, sending them to the government, the government saying, that's good, that's good, that's good. We don't like that one, you know, and then granting money out and then those companies running with it and developing the technologies to do that. Now, is that under the government umbrella? Yeah, it's, yeah. it is, you know, um, but it's also independent and they're allowed to think outside the government box. But, and by think, you mean move faster? Yes. Yeah. The government <laughs> box can be very restricting. It can be very, very, very restricting. Um, and, and it's just the nature of government and bureaucracy. Um, whereas companies that are allowed to operate outside of that government bureaucracy and provide a product to the government can be very innovative. Mm-hmm. And so things that were, you know, um, the, uh, the, 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 Everything that you're seeing now, you know, that is being done by companies, you know, whether it's Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbital, um, Blue Spa- you know, um, Blue Blue Origins, SpaceX, you know, the the you just go down the list of companies. 
that are now coming out. And, and trust me, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies. We don't have enough time to talk about every single one in the space industry. Yeah. Um, but they're being incredibly innovative, you know? So, I mean, what we're seeing now in the last decade, so now we get to this decade, you know, that we're, that we're just, that we've just finished up, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, of the, you know, 2010 to 2019 slash 20. Um, in any case was another era of incredible firsts, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of being able to, you know, fly the rocket, bring the first stage back and land it on earth, you know, being able to bring significant portions of that spacecraft back and land it on earth and recover it and be able to reuse it again is truly what they wanted with the shuttle in the seventies, but we didn't figure it out until now. Really? You know, so if you think about it, cause that's what the shuttle was supposed to be. Yeah. But it turns out that operating the shuttle was just as expensive, if not more so than operating, you know, a, a totally non-reusable spacecraft. So, you know, now what, you know, what's going on, you know, with the, with the, you know, the vertical takeoff, the vertical landings, you know, so the, the, you know, now they're starting to look at single stage to orbit, um, actually not now that's been looked at for ages, but you know, it might be coming to fruition here soon. All those things that you're seeing, you know, Virgin, um, Virgin Galactic, you know, and at the time it was the spaceship company and it was the SpaceX prize, yeah. which is another story it's, itself, you know, the SpaceX prize or the X prize, excuse me, um, you know, along with the Orteg prize back in the early days of aviation was what drove us towards a lot of the innovation in the aviation industry, money to companies to try and compete for something and learn something new. Mm-hmm. The X prize was money to companies to try and achieve something and learn yeah. something new. And they did. And now we're seeing the fruition of it. So it's kind of a repeat, you know, hundred years later of the same thing that was happening at the early part of the, the 20th century. In any case, the uh, um, now though, we, we, we have technologies that are, that are advancing by leaps and bounds, you know, within each of these little, you know, these smaller companies that are trying these incredibly innovative things, you know, to get spacecraft up, to get satellites up, to get people into space, to go on deep space exploration missions, you know. And I think this is just as exciting a time as the 1960s. But it's less on the space realm back then. It was because we were in such a you know fearful situation between the U.S. and the Soviet, you know, the Western nations and the Soviet Union. So yeah. there was that fear level, and space was a battleground, a true battleground. Right now, it's not. Right now, you've got competition, not battleground. Although you never know what may happen, U.S., yeah. China, and things like that. That's another uh-huh. story. That's another story. That's a, probably a whole different, you know podcast kind of thing so but but right now you've truly got as much innovation now as was occurring back then um if not more so innovation wise um uh, you know and i think things are changing at, you know evolving even more rapidly now than they were back then personal opinion i think um but what's driving it is different you know what's driving it now is 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 um a lot of people's desire to innovate and to be first you know, to do mm. X, Y, Z and to create a situation where they, you know, here's another thing to profit from the yeah, space industry as well. That's that's always a piece of it. You yeah. Know? Well, you have to to continue to continue doing something. Usually money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah oh, eat. yeah. You know, <laughs> and that's even that's even something, you know, NASA um, recently went through. There's been a little bit of a change here recently because you take a look at, you know, SpaceX just recently flew, you know, astronauts up to the International Space Station, and they're going to do it again here in the extreme near future. Um, uh, um, you know, and the plan is within the next few weeks, essentially. You've got Boeing that wants to fly people up. But NASA, as they were taking a look at, you know, they were, you know, SpaceX was flying and SpaceX, um, you know, the, and, and all these different companies were flying payloads up to space, um, whether it was cargo, um, whether it was satellites and things like that. And, you know, they had the company stuff emblazoned all over it and yeah. everything like that. But you didn't see NASA listed on those spacecraft. But guess who was paying for the vast majority of all that stuff? NASA. NASA. And it finally, um, uh, a couple of friends of mine, actually, who were briefing um, the, the, the NASA hierarchy um, and some of their marketing folks, you know, um, uh, were briefing them. And one of the individuals, his son was with him. And so as they were um, briefing Jim Bridenstine and, the, you know, the heads of, uh, you know, these heads of NASA, um, they finally turned to his son and said, well, what do you think about everything we've been talking about? And he says, well, 
if I look at everything that I see out there, you know, I see this, this, and he's basically talking about all the companies, but he says, but until I was at this meeting, I had no idea that NASA was funding this yeah, stuff and was the umbrella organization, everything else like that. And Jim Bridenstine apparently was like, that's exactly it. Next missions, I want NASA emblazoned all over. You know, so now you see as these flights are going up, NASA's joining in and taking involvement with it because they are involved. Yeah. They, you know, it's not have like... They, have, and they've always been involved, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's not like NASA wasn't involved, but it was just the way, you know, things were funded and these companies were being allowed to work, you know, um, not underneath the government, but with government funding outside mm. of the that square, that yeah. box of, of government. So, you know, so that's what's going on. And um, I think that's good for everybody, you know, because yeah. everybody now it's like, okay, NASA and these companies are working together, you know, so, and they are creating amazing things, you know, so, and that's what's going on. NASA's allowing these companies to innovate so you think that's a good thing oh i think that is a phenomenal thing you know okay. and that's why we're seeing all of these incredible first i the if you go back to yeah can you tell i get excited about this stuff? um in <laughs> any case though it. if you go and take a look at 1950s um science fiction art and things like that and movies and everything one of the things that always stood out in my mind was the images of like two rockets on pads, either taking off or landing together and stuff like that, you know, and, and multiple, you know, all these things going on. Well, you never really saw that until SpaceX did that. And they launched off, you know, that one of the heavy rockets and they brought back two of the side boosters, you know, from it. Cause each one of them's a, um, one of the, the, the first stages of the, um, uh, of the rocket. And they brought back two of the first stages and landed them side by side right yeah. there at, at at Cape Canaveral. And when I was watching that, it was this instantaneous, incredible flashback to the sci-fi and art of the 1950s and going, what those people were dreaming about and just drawing, I just watched it happen. Yeah, You know, and that to me was one of those things going, we did it, you know, and it actually led to an exhibit that we're working on in the museum now. And that's the concept of science fiction and science fact influencing each other all the time. You know, so as things happen in the in the factual real world, it influences what we write about in the science fiction world because, you know, you yeah. then can dream about more. And as you write about things in the science fiction world, it influences people or, you know, excites people. And then that influences what happens in the science fact world. I mean, people lightsabers, you know. We see it in the Star Wars movies, but, you know, we're like, oh, it's, it's not real or whatever. Well, essentially, you know, we are creating lightsabers nowadays. You yeah. know, the Dick Tracy. Did you just see that one? Yes, like, I did. Yeah, massive something? tanks, you know, yeah. so it's not realistic. But, <laughs> it's you know, almost so, like a flamethrower. Yeah, it's, well, that's exactly what it is, but it sure looks and operates like a, like a lightsaber. But, you know, the Dick Tracy watch and the Star Trek communicator, you know, well, if I, you know, hold my phone right now and do the things that I can do with it, that's essentially a Dick Tracy watch or a Star Trek communicator, yeah, no you know, or, or, or your Apple, Apple watch, watch yeah, your Apple seriously. watch that you can talk into and everything else. That's a Dick Tracy watch, you know. So what was being written about 100 years ago and dreamed about 100 years ago, because no, there's no way they could have the technology to do it now is commonplace. So and we have evidence of that, right, with the yeah. even in the early film industry with yeah. the, oh, God, the, yes. the bullet going to the moon, you know, it's mm -hmm. like. We didn't really know. Yep. We didn't George, really understand. George Melier. Yeah. You know, so. We didn't understand rockets or anything, but we knew it's like, okay, if you shoot a gun, a bullet comes out really fast. So if you make a big gun, we can reach the moon. Yep. And so it's like, as that idea has progressed, I can, I see exactly what you're saying and we can actually see it. And it's, 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 yeah. it, it's here with us. So that's why that's, that's the, you know, we're finishing up our new human spaceflight exhibit at our museum right now at the New Mexico Museum of Space History. And the next exhibit that we're going to be working on, in fact, actually, we've already got preview pieces of it up. Um, in the museum is the science sci-fi and sci-fact exhibit and i'm thinking that we may actually throw in a pop culture name into that as well because it all does blend together you yeah know? so but yeah but we've got a ton of sci-fi props and costumes and other things that are um that are at the museum that will be part of that exhibit you know once again just showing how the two realms affect each other yeah no i i yeah, it's a I lot can, of fun i'm excited <laughs> to see that whenever COVID is. COVID is lifted, but, um, uh, so you were, when you were going through the decades, you were talking about, I think you said the nineties to early two thousands is where internationally yeah. all the countries started to work together. So essentially did space go from something that was very possessive to a country like America was doing their thing. Russia was doing their thing. I, I don't know when China got playing mm -hmm. or, or even if Europe at all, um, if you could kind of delve into, 
into what's going on right now, uh, yeah. our relations with some of these countries, and are we working together, or is it becoming more of a you know American privatized uh, uh, companies it's, working on this or something? It, it, it's it's different. That's that's a huge yeah, area. Yeah. It's a huge so simplify kind of topic. it for my yeah, small so, brain. So I'm I'm trying to think of exactly <laughs> how to simplify it. You know, the the bottom line being is is that in the very early days, you had a very limited number of entities, i.e., U.S. and Soviets, that were truly doing significant yeah, rich things, enough to space flight. Yep. So. Um, yes, you had other countries that over that time, you know, over the years have developed missile technology and things like that. Um, and you have countries now, you know, whether it's, you know, you're talking India, whether you're talking China, um, you know, the Israelis can launch into space, you know, the French, um, British, U.S., um, Russians, very obviously. So um, all can launch, you know, spacecraft up as far as flying humans into space. You know, we're still only talking about the U.S., the Russians and the Chinese, um, although India may join that you know, that small group of nations within the next couple of years as well. That's their goal, although COVID may have set them back a little bit as well. Um, but they were looking at here in a, two years to be flying humans in space. In any case, though, so originally it was very much the competition. It was two countries, the West and the, and the, and the, and the Soviet Union going up against each other in, in space flight. And then, as I meant, you know, as I said, you start to see more international cooperation going on. And that really starts with in the 1970s, actually, with the, with the uh, Apollo-Soyuz test project. Apollo spacecraft, Soyuz spacecraft from the U.S. and the Soviet side and docking them together and learning that we, you know, need to learn a little bit more about each other. Then as you go through 80s, 90s, early parts of the 2000s, now you start to see as spaceflight becomes more routine, as we start building space stations, space shuttles and things like that, more cooperation. Um, and that, you know, the, the U.S. and, you know, Soviet Union breaks up. Now the U.S. and the Russians start talking a lot more and they come up with essentially the, the shuttle Mir program where, you know, we we figure that we're going to work together eventually on a space station because the U.S. wanted to build a space station on its own. Freedom was what it was going to be called. Well, we kind of realized that that might not be as realistic as we thought. We uh -huh. need partners. And so who's your first partner going to be? Russians. What are the Russians operating? They're operating the Mir space station. What's going to be one of the basis of the new ISS Mir plus U.S. technology that's being developed for freedom? Hey, let's start. We got a shuttle. We're flying up there. Let's start, you know, docking, yeah. learning how to do all that sort of stuff. And they started figuring it out and then started working with, you know, it was, oh, shoot, I'm blanking on the number. It's over, it's over 17 countries working together on the International Space Station program. You know, Japanese, very significant in there. The Europeans, a number of European mm -hmm. countries, Russians, et cetera, et cetera. You got countries from all over the world, Canada, you know, so who worked with us on the on the shuttle, you know, the Canada arm. You know, that's that the, the manipulator arm on the shuttle. That yeah. was Canadian, you know. So, huh. yeah, if you didn't know. That, you know that's so. the thing that pops out of all the Lego kits, right? You, there you go. Bingo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, yep, small, so. small brain. Got to put in small brain terms for me. <laughs> so, In any case, though, so significant international cooperation really getting started and culminating in the International Space Station. Um, nowadays, though, companies and countries are working together like crazy, whether it's the, the Europeans and the Russians working on launch vehicles and satellites and launching one from, you know, European satellite launching on a Russian rocket, Russian stuff launching on a European rocket, African stuff launching on this, you know, Middle Eastern Space Agency. There's now a Middle Eastern Space Agency and they're launching stuff on European rocket. I mean, it's just, it's all over the, you know, all over the place. Um, uh, the, the, as far as not only human space flights, where you've got humans from these various assorted countries, guess what? The Soviets, even during the days of the Soviet Union, was flying international astronauts on the Russian slash Soviet spacecraft. Um, U.S., you know, eventually with the shuttle era, starts flying a lot of international astronauts on the shuttle spacecraft. So international cooperation. It's, it's an yeah. era where everything is starting to become, you know, very intermingled you know now a lot of the missions that go on deep space exploration not human space flight but you know unmanned um space exploration um that is usually cooperative whether you know it may be a u.s probe going to mm -hmm. you know another thing but it will probably have other nations instruments on board that spacecraft you know or heck you know now we're flying you know some of the some of these innovative u.s spacecraft rockets that we're launching guess what they're using russian engines you know i mean it's it's all sorts of things it's all mixing together now that being said there still is not full cooperation obviously there's there's the and thus is the space force the, the, well <laughs> 
that's another story entirely. So, but you know, if you take a look at the the Chinese space program, and it's always been a little bit viewed that there was technology stealing going on, you know, mm-hmm. amongst that. And so, the U.S. space program does not associate with the Chinese space program really at all. Um, uh, to this day, it's very off- obvious that the Russian space program does because the Chinese spacecraft is really an offshoot of the Soyuz um, spacecraft and the space stations and things like that. It's it's a significant cooperation over there. But there's there's, you know, a, a current rivalry, obviously, between the U.S. and the Chinese space program. And it's the fear, not necessarily that they don't like each other. There's a war going on, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a technology issue um, and the potential of, you know, future conflict and stuff like that. But not to go too much into detail on that one, I think the thing that I'd rather say is what you see now is significant um, worry amongst all these different space companies of technology being, you know, stolen from one company to another. So that's where you see a lot of rivalry nowadays where they're, you know, they're very, you know, insular about their operations, their technology, absolutely everything, because they're worried about, you know, company A is worried about company B Mm -hmm. and C, you know, getting, you know, getting information and technology that they can then use in their you know, product. And it's a, it's a money thing. Yeah. It's really a money thing, not necessarily a national wartime prestige or anything like that. Yeah. It's a, it's a money thing. Yeah. It's not like we're going to be ringing the new, the, the bells for the nukes or anything, Yep, yeah. but it, it, it does come down to uh, what is your property? You might yeah. Say. So, you know, even though there may be international cooperation that this company may be working with international agencies here, here and there, but they may be very, you know, not amenable to operating with the company that's, you know, two miles down the road. You know, yep. <laughs> no, no, that makes sense. That's, I mean, you got rivals with oh, yeah. whatever business you're in. Disney and Universal. <laughs> you know, when one of them's developing a ride, they don't want the other one to know very much about it, you yep. know, so the yeah. technology, et cetera. <laughs> okay. So moving forwards, what are uh, two outlandish predictions for this decade, 2020 to 2030? You can just go off the wall. You don't, you don't have to have that much concrete evidence for where we're going to be. Um, but two predictions for major events that are going to happen, and then two ones that you actually think are based on what is rooted. Let me start with the things that I think are going to happen. I think we're going to be landing humans on the moon again. Really? Yeah, so yes. So in any case, I think I think that that's going to be happening. I think that um, that the that we might, you know, even be look, you know, that the when you take a look at the the rocket sizes that you know, uh, yeah. I'm kind of hemming and hawing here while I'm actually thinking, but you know, we're going to be landing humans on the moon and I don't think it's going to be just the U S I think it's going to be multiple, it's going to be a global multiple thing. countries and it may be multiple companies as well. I think that's going to happen. Now, is that um, with, with the, the uh, purpose of setting up like a moon base or something? I, I think that we're headed towards longer term stays on the moon. And, and that just makes complete sense. Top Mars is a, Mars is a big problem. That's where we want to get to. Yeah. Mars is the ultimate goal, but Mars is hard. Mars is very, very hard. Um, uh, and even harder than what we see in movies like The Martian and other stuff like yeah, that. It's, just in, John it's incredibly, Carter. yeah, it's incredibly hard. So the, you really need to learn more about long-term survival on another body in space before we go to Mars. Well, what better place than the moon? It's only 250,000 miles, roughly plus or minus, away from Earth. That may seem like a long ways, but it's really not time-wise. And so not only for communications, but for problems and things like that, you know, if things go bad, it's not that crazy to try and bring people back. You know, you're talking about a few days as opposed to three to six to nine months, Gosh, you know, to bring people back or 24-minute round-trip communication, things like that, you know, so... Um, that you're talking about with Mars. So we got to go to the moon. We got to learn how to live on that planet. Plus, also, there's resources up there. There's going to be you know, companies and countries that are going to want to get some of the resources that might be available on the moon. So I think those things are going to continue happening. And that's the goal um, you know, of a lot of uh, many, many agencies. So that's realistically going to be something that happens. I think we are. I mean, I don't think I know we are going to see commercial um, tourist space flight. You know, we've already seen tourists go up in space on, you know, Soyuz rockets and stuff like that. But I mean, routine. Yeah. Tourist space flight. And we know. Semi-affordable. Depending on I don't think I don't think I don't think in this decade you're going to see it be truly affordable to more of the masses. I think it's still going to be a a rich person's realm. Yeah. 
And I think that's going to continue for a while. So you're going to see it, but a significant uptick. And that's probably going to happen in the next two to three years uptick in space tourism, where you're going to have people flying in low Earth orbit. You're going to have people flying suborbital. You're going to have people going up to the International Space Station. I think you're going to have people going to the moon. Um, you know, if, if yeah. just to just to just to fly up there, fly around it and come back, that's all going to happen in this decade. I'm, I'm certain of that. So when you when you talk about, you know, and that's because we're already on that trajectory and we'll see that stuff, I think, within six months starting up, you know, so um, so it'll become more routine, but it will still only be open up to the rich. The when you talk pie in the sky, yeah. you know, that that, that really is. Um, uh, and and I guess there's there's maybe a time frame that I got to throw in here, too. Um, the pie in the sky is Mars, you know, I, the the and and Mars happening within, you know, people talk about it in the 2030s. I don't think it's going to happen by then. I don't think we're going to be ready. So mm-hmm. but that, you know, that would be the outlandish thing to me. And I think a lot of people are being outlandish about that right now, yeah. you know, about us truly flying um, people to Mars safely um, by the by the 2030s. You know, so it's just um, that might I think that's a bridge too far because of the health issues, not because of the technology issues, but because of the health yeah. issues. Health. And also what might be happening down here to actually uh, put any sort of stag- stagnant uh uh, anything that holds it back yeah, yeah down here, here so, you know, yep, so god only knows what's going to happen right now with what's going on to you know state country and world economies yep. with with the you know with the covid virus that's you know that's delayed so many things yep. you know so a lot of the space first that we thought were going to happen this year are not because of delays you know related to covid restrictions etc so yeah. and goodness knows how long this lasts but you know i mean that's that's you know avalanche what what's the <laughs> you know when you and when you take a look at the things that, you know, I would love to see, you know, so and, 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 you know, the thing that I'm hoping happens before my time on this planet ends, you know, so is is that landing on Mars. So I'm hoping that I was that I will have been able to see the first man at that point in time, step on the moon. And then now the first human man or woman, we don't know, step foot onto Mars, you know, so, um, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the just settle the for thing. a monkey. The, a monkey on a no, monkey. Nope. No, got to <laughs> gotta be a human. Got to be, be human. So, be a human. so, but you know, and that's the, you know, the Mars thing's all related. So I think the other thing that might be a bit pie in the sky right now, but eventually is probably going to happen. So is true commercial space transportation, i.e. flying around the world using space, oh, wow. space as a medium. So instead you know, of taking so, 12 hours to get to uh, London. It might take an hour and a half. Yeah. You know, so things like, you know, so or less, you know, kind of things Th- like that. So that's that. achievable where you can actually like launch up and then go right back down? It, we're headed towards it. You know, really? eventually that's that's the goal of many organizations, you know, so. And, and I think that it, that has a, that has a possibility of coming to fruition within the next, you know, 10 years. Um, that's insane. Uh, um, and, and. Makes sense, that, you know, but once again, like I said, we're in an era of space evolution and achievement and, you know, the 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 accomplishments and the making it more routine. I think we're in the era now that we were in in the early 1900s with aviation. I think we're seeing the exact same thing happen again. And so what we think now is routine. Hop on an airplane, fly, you know, across the country. No big deal. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh-huh. Yeah, hundred years from now, hundred years from space. now, people will be looking at you know, hey, hop on a you know, hop on a rocket, you know, and fly you know at point to point, you know, or whatever. So yeah. and it you know being happening really Grandpa, fast. You didn't have rockets back in your day. Yeah, public transport rockets. It took you six <laughs> hours to fly there. Yeah, wow. back, back in my day when I visited Australia, it was a twenty-one hour flight. Yeah. So so I think I think we're going to be headed towards that era. Or that's a good possibility in a shorter term. It's going to happen eventually. You yeah. Know, so, but I'm just thinking in the shorter term that it, that that you know, pie in the sky might be a yeah, possibility. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. So I know we're running a little short on time here, and we got to yeah. start closing some things up. But I wanted to end with a couple of uh, uh, more humorous questions, and uh, one of them is, "What was your favorite artifact oh, um, gosh. that you <laughs> have either hand, like, that you've been around or seen or something? What is what's your favorite?" Oh, and there's yeah, there's tens of thousands of artifacts that I have been around um that i've seen um that i have hand been you know fortunate enough to handle um i think i'm gonna you know so one of the oddest ones and probably one of the more interesting ones al shepherd's golf club um that he used on the surface of the moon on apollo 14 i was about to say that's kind of a basic yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, some so, golf no, club. No, and then you add 
on the face of the moon. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, yeah. So in any case, though, um, had a chance to put that on display um, uh, once. And uh, it, it essentially it's the lunar sampling tool handle with a special adapter for a Wilson six iron head um, that he then screwed on. And he had two golf balls in his pocket. He went to hit the first one and uh, uh, missed it. And it kind of shanked off, you know, and and, Ugh, and Ed, Mitch, Ed Mitchell, who was on the moon with him at the time, said, uh, hey, you got more dirt than ball that time, you know, and yeah, Al Shepard, you know, pulled another golf ball out of his pocket, which by the to the end of his days, he never said what brand of golf ball they were, and nobody could tell because the video was very grainy. Oh, I can imagine um, that'd be bragging rights. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and in, in any case, though, and he dropped the second one, he leaned back, and you have to, you know, move this in the spacesuit very oddly, but he hit the second one, it kind of went off, it landed in a in a crater not too far away, um, and he said, miles and miles and miles was his quote, you know, when he hit it, even though it didn't really go that far. Interestingly enough, I think one of the funny stories was Ed Mitchell telling me that then he reached back and there was uh, the pole from one of the experiments that was a lunar uh, um, uh, a lunar uh, wind or solar wind experiment that they had on the moon. It had two poles that were stuck into the lunar surface and then there had been a catchment, you know, catcher in between them. And he took one of those poles, he pulled it out of the ground and he threw it like a javelin and it landed in the same crater as the golf ball just beyond Dang. it, you know, so, and then they took a picture of it. So, and he used to say to the, uh, you know, as he was, he says, you know, results of the first lunar Olympics, javelin throw one golf ball zero. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here we case, are talking about so much innovation and everything. And these guys are just dorking around up there. Yeah. So, but just, I mean, it was just, at the end of the mission admittedly, know, so, know, before just, they got back at the spacecraft. So, um, you know, and they're trying to make it um, relatable yeah. to the public. To be mm-hmm. able to, you know, relate to what was going on yeah, on the moon. So I think, you know, the, that's one of one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite artifacts. But I could, yeah, yeah, that's that's one where you know a top ten would even be difficult. Yeah, because there are so no, yeah, because that's so my next many. one. Like, I mean, who's I've, your... been, I've been fortunate enough to climb inside of Apollo spacecraft that flew to the moon. You know, so I mean, that's you know, doing inspections and things like that. You know, I've been inside Apollo thirteen. I've been inside Apollo fifteen. You know, I've been. You know, it's a so I mean, it's tough to to you know to really yeah. kind of get back. You know, and say which one is the yeah greatest. Like but, throughout your yeah. storied career, I think like, that was that was a, to... that was a fun one. <laughs> yeah, no, I could. Yeah, that'd be that'd be hilarious to hear uh, that whole encounter. Um, and then my next one is something very similar. I know you can't pick a favorite. Um, but just a, a moment with an individual inside uh, this arena that really just stood out to you. Uh, it can be funny. Wow. It can be uh, sentimental, whatever it is. Just, some, just pick a moment or something that uh, really impacted um, you. In some way. And a num- number of the, you know, that, that interest, you know, that story that I brought up about, you know, Charlie Duke and, and Buzz Aldrin was fun. You know, I've been fortunate to meet and talk with Neil Armstrong and, and uh, you know, Al Bean and, and uh, um, you know, just meant, you know, Jack Schmidt. Gene Cernan, you name it. So, um, and these are, you know, those are all Apollo, um, the, OGs. Uh, the, the, the guys. So, but, um, Wally Shira, um, and so he was one of the Mercury astronauts. He flew on Mercury, he flew on Gemini and he flew on Apollo. He flew Thanks, the first so he Apollo was an OG, OG. Yes. So in any case, um, but, uh, Wally was a Navy, um, a Naval aviator, um, pilot, you know, selected in as one of the first seven astronauts and flew, uh, he was speaking at a, um, at one of the uh, um, National Air and Space Museum Mutual Concerns Conference in San Diego, and the I was brand new at the at the Kansas Cosmosphere at that point in time um, at the first museum that I ran, and uh, the guy who was the deputy. We were at the San Diego Air and Space Museum, and um, I was walking around with the guy who was um, uh, the, my number two at the organization there. And as we walked around one of the corners, there was Wally and he was talking to, to uh, um, somebody else. And, uh, we, you know, like I said, we'd been walking through the space exhibits. And Jim said to me, he said, hey, let me introduce you to Wally, you know, because he, he knew him from the past. So in any mm-hmm. case, um, Wally finished talking with him and he looks over and he's like, hey, Jim, you know, good to see you. So and, and Jim said, hey, I want to introduce you to the new president and CEO at the Cosmosphere. This is Chris Orwell. And Wally looks at me and goes, you're that you're that uh, um, submariner from the Cosmosphere that I heard about. Now, I'm a submariner. Submariner is the way the British pronounce it. If you say submariner to a U.S. guy, that means you're less than a mariner, you know. So it's a little bit of an insult. And him being a naval aviator, he very obviously knew exactly what he was mm-hmm. saying. So he goes, "Hey, you're that you're that new submariner from the Cosmosphere that I heard about." I just looked at him. I said, "You're that old nasal radiator instead of naval aviator. You're that old nasal radiator I heard about from San Diego." <laughs> he nearly dies laughing. So. 
for the next two hours, you know, as we're going through the reception and dinner and everything else, we're just ribbing each other constantly, yeah. you know, through the evening. And then he gives up and he gives the speech and he's ribbing me from up on stage, you know, so I couldn't respond at that point in time, you know, like the rest of it. Yeah. But we had a wonderful evening together. Sadly, he passed away within weeks um, mm. of that, um, but it was a marvelous memory, you know. I I can also think back to being in Al Bean's gallery as he's working on his art pieces from the moon and helping him you know, do some of the art for, for, you know, his, the, the pieces. He was working on a piece for the National Air and Space Museum and I ended up actually helping him, you know, with it a little bit. Just so many different Mm -hmm. experiences and stuff. I think that one with Wally is just still stands out in my memory because it was one of the early ones and it was fun. It was two Navy guys. We're both Naval Academy graduates. And so it was two Navy guys just having fun. Mm-hmm. ribbing each other through the through the entire yeah, using only terminology that you guys understand and not having to worry about alienating anyone else yeah yeah exactly so and it was just it was just fun so you know they're all human all the astronauts are human with sometimes we have difficulty remembering that you know they're they're just humans they're people i like many of them i don't like some of them you know it's just you know in, in any case they're all human and and uh and they're all trying to do a job and a mission Sometimes a lot more difficult, you know, um, uh, than we know about, uh, you know, to to achieve space exploration. So it's fun to fun to get to interact with them on that human level. You yeah, know, people that I, I idolized, idolized as a little one, you know. So, I mean, I can remember, you know, reaching up to try and shake John Young's hand and Charlie Duke's hand as an eight year old and then getting to talk to them as a friend and colleague in my 40s and 50s. Yeah. So that's, very different. Yeah. No, that's a <laughs> it, it's it's amazing to hear stuff like that um when everything comes full circle yep. in that sort of sense and it's, yep. it's still continuing obviously yep. oh, yeah. um so thank you very much for your time i know you have to get out of here um thank you for explaining stuff to, <laughs> to my small brain as i like to say it and uh um giving me uh uh excitement and piquing my interest in things that i'm probably going to go look up now not so. a problem that's a big part of my job you know yeah. so to try and excite and entertain and you know and uh, get people inspired about the space programs. Yep, and whenever that museum opens back up again, we're going to have to go check out that exhibit whenever it gets in there. Oh, yeah. I'll be super excited about that. But anyways, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a good day. Hey, thank you.